Uh, okay, so uh, Rachel, hello. Will you pray for us? <laughs> Welcome, and now pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for our Sunday morning together. May all we prepare our hearts for worship and first learn more about you. Help us and give uh, Mike the words to glorify you and learn to enjoy you more this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we will just open up to Exodus 26. 26. So a lot of what I have to say is from Lightheart. So get ready, Laura. <laughs> you get ready. He's not the only one. He's not the only one. No, luckily for me. Okay, so the house that Israel builds. So last week we saw that Yahweh gets married to Israel. Okay, Yahweh takes a bride. That's what the wed the wedding ceremony was. Um, Exodus roughly twenty through twenty four. So um, he takes, uh, he frees her as a slave from Egypt, takes her into the wilderness. They make a covenant to one, with one another, stipulations. Then they have a wedding feast at the end in Exodus 24, uh, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. And then what happens is he then starts to put his house in order. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about this during the Titus series, uh, men and women putting their house in order by putting themselves in order so that they can put society in order um, it is the way God always operates. So now that he has taken upon himself the household of Israel, he's putting things in order. And he does that by giving law, uh, explaining them his expectations. Um, I don't, for those of you who are married, I, I think, you know, in the f how long do, does it actually take for uh, the husband and wife to get a basic understanding of how things are going to work. At least 17 years. At least 17 years, okay. I'm just the question. How long does it take for a husband and wife to figure out the basic stipulations of how things are going to work? Oh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that, that's what we have to remember here is that he's, he tells them everything he wants them to know. This is what I am expecting of you. He's very clear. But as uh, anyone who's married understands, that, that knowing those things does not necessarily mean you're going to do them, right? We, we vow to all kinds of things on our wedding day that might take us decades to actually um, really commit ourselves to. Uh, I remember, I'll, I won't throw myself under the bus, but I remember Dean telling a story about the time he went golfing uh, after he got married, like three weeks after he got married and didn't tell his wife where he was going. Um, and then she was like all in a tizzy and she was crying and she called hospitals. Uh, and he was learning that, yeah, okay, apparently there's another human being who cares what happens to me, and I have to actually talk to them about what I'm going to do with my time. Um, so what we see here in this is not that Israel immediately conforms to the standard. In fact, we will go on through the entire Old Testament, and we will see that Israel never conforms uh, to the standard. But, but, but God is very patient, and he is a very patient husband. And in that, we learn a great deal about husbandry, and we learn a great deal about marriage. So here at the beginning, uh, I'm in sort of the end of 25, Exodus 25, and then into 26. I want to talk about the house that he builds. Um, he, he builds a house for his bride, and so that uh, the, t the tents are arranged in a very particular order. The tabernacle is at the center, and he is establishing Israel so that Israel will establish his house on earth. Okay, So what we have is... 
man is returning to the garden. <clears throat> this is um, obvious in a lot of the details of the tabernacle, as we're going to look at here. But the garden is where God dwelled with man, Adam and Eve. And so what God is trying to establish is, is a place where he can dwell with his people. And so it's a garden of trees is the first thing that we understand about this. Okay, so the tabernacle has trees in, in it. And here's what I mean. In the description of the lampstand at the end of chapter 25, it says, uh, six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms. So what you have are these giant candelabras, essentially, that look like almond trees. Okay, So why is God making this house that has almond trees in it? Well, because it's supposed to look like the garden. Now, the other thing is that man himself is meant to look like a tree. Um, when they describe the, the clothing of the high priest, he has pomegranates hanging from the edges of his clothing. And that's because he himself is supposed to look like pomegranate tree, right? And then this is typologically what we see in the Psalms, right? What is a blessed man like? He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. The blind man is given sight and he sees men and what do they look like? They look like trees. Why? Because there's some connection uh, typologically between men and trees, okay? So the other thing that we realize is that there are cherubim in the tabernacle. So where are the cherubim in the tabernacle? They are the ark. Okay, they're on the ark, right? They're on the throne of God. That's what the ark is. It's the footstool of Yahweh. And just like when they describe the throne in heaven, um, Yahweh is always surrounded by cherubim, and so his throne on earth is also surrounded by cherubim. Okay, but those aren't... So those cherubim represent the heavenly cherubim who worship God all day and night and say, holy, holy, holy. There are other cherubim, though. Where are the other cherubim? Uh, somewhere inside the tabernacle. Do you guys remember? Okay, well, I'll come back to this question. Let's go to the door of the tabernacle. Okay, so the door of the tabernacle faces what direction? East. East, so that when you enter it, what direction do you have to go? West. Okay, so man is heading west. Man is heading west in order to get back to Yahweh. Okay, the, the tabernacle is a portal of sorts to the Garden of Eden. There are cherubim embroidered into the tabernacle curtains as well as built above the ark. So there is a curtain in this house that, go, that is like this. It has three areas. This curtain right here that separates the most holy place where the ark is, that one has cherubim on it. Now, why do you think there are cherubim there? Because it's pretty. Yes, that is true. But who was left at the door of the garden? Cherubim. Cherubim. Okay. So men, only one man is allowed to go in here. Other men are allowed to go in here. Right? Remember? There's like stages to how close you can get. And the holier you are, the more... There's a select group. Right? The group gets smaller and smaller as you go. And this three-level tabernacle is supposed to be like the three levels of the earth. Remember how we had the heavens... Right, the earth and under the earth. You had the, the skies, the, the land, and the seas. The house that Yahweh lives in is the same sort of thing. There's three levels to it. And the Israelites who stand here are look at this 
curtain with the cherubim on it and are reminded of the garden where they cannot go. Is, are you guys following so far? So, not only does Yahweh make a very beautiful tabernacle, he makes a very beautiful house, but the, but the, the things inside of it mean something, okay? So this is the iconoclastic Americans, um, right? If you go inside churches now, we Puritan descendants, we have a hard time putting anything in there that is beautiful. Um, I remember going to Mars Hill, it's like a giant dark warehouse. Um, I, I, it, it resembled very much the places I used to go to house, like big warehouse parties. <laughs> Same amount of lighting. Um, but, you know, I've been to churches in Europe, both, peer, or, uh, both Protestant ones and Catholic ones, and they had no problem filling those churches with beautiful things. The difference, I believe, in the proper use of images in a sanctuary is that they have meaning. Um, I actually am far more comfortable uh, with things than what we even design our own church with because I, if it has meaning and it's beautiful, then you should, right? The, the tabernacle, the temple, God's place of worship has always been a beautiful place full of symbolism. Now, I've also been in churches in Portugal um, where there are so many statues and everything is covered in gold. I can't tell what's what, it's, it, and it's super creepy even. Like, it's a creepy place. Um, and there was even a restaurant we went to that was in an old church in Ireland. And, and we actually got up and left because we just couldn't do it. it like, once we got in there, it, was so, it looked so much like a church that I was like, I cannot sit here drinking Merlot and eating ribeyes. Um, because it just seems so sacrosanct. Um, and so churches ought to look like churches. Places of worship ought to be beautiful. They ought to be full of symbols. So that, you know, we, there's a lot about this architecture that we're not going to get into here, but this is why cathedrals and churches in the Middle Ages look the way they did. Every, even the design of the building had symbolism uh, with the glass, the high roofs, the shape. But I love that about this, right? That this isn't just a tent. It's a tent that looks beautiful, and the, and the symbols to make it beautiful are actually meaningful. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have you guys ever been in a really tastefully done, decorated church? Yes. Yeah, where? Europe. Yeah, but where in Europe? Be more specific. Come on. <laughs> Was there one that stuck out to you, Laura? That I really liked? Yeah. I can't think of a specific one. St. Patrick's in New York City. Yeah, okay, there you go. That's a good one. Beautiful. Yeah, nice. Yeah, there was actually a Catholic church in Annapolis that I really liked. It's right in the center of town. And it was a great, because it was it was obviously more decorated than a Protestant church, but it didn't have the centuries of packing in things. Yeah, even like the small little churches in villages. Yeah. They're small. Right. They're not cathedrals. But, but they're beautiful. They, they paint them beautifully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm just thinking of when I was in last summer, and it just... Yeah, simple but beautiful. Yeah. I think St. Paul's also is a good balance. Of, yeah, the two things. Of uh, formal, but it doesn't feel mm -hmm. like some of those weird Italian mm -hmm. cathedrals where you're like... Yeah, and I mean... dead... Embalmed saints, yes, or the Black Mary, or yeah. And in, yeah. in, the, in the Hungarian church we went to, there was a shriveled hand, and, and you could buy indulgences there. Or and there the was church literally in Budapest. Yeah, that one is incredible. Peter's Basilica yeah, in Rome is just like it's too. Much. It's too much. It's yeah, too you go to some of these. I remember the one in Portugal. I, I went to several in Portugal. There was one I didn't. I got to the door and looked around and said, "I'm not going in there." 
because it was literally covered in gold leaf. It was insane. But there were statues everywhere. It was, it, it was crazy. But then there was a church that Anne and I went to that was a thousand years old in um, in Bulgaria, and and it, and it had beautiful murals. And and you understand that back then people there were fewer people who could read. And so, right, if you're preaching a sermon and you're talking about Moses and you, you look up at the wall, you literally have, like, an illustration right there that helps. And I thought, you know, at first we kind of were like, ooh, this seems a little gaudy. But then we, when you think about it, it actually, as you're going into the church and inside the church, it's covered in things that are very helpful if you can't actually read the stories. Or no Latin. Or no Latin. <laughs> Was it a Byzantium church? You know, it, Did they use mosaic to make the murals? portions of it. So it was a church that has been run by very different Christians over the time period, so it had different sections that were very different from one another. Um, so they used similar color schemes, but yeah, there was some mosaic in some of them, and then some painting in some of them, uh, and then wood carving. Um, they actually, instead of painting, they just carved things out of wood. Um, okay, so inside the, the tabernacle is all of this beauty that means something. Okay, so the tabernacle is the result of divinely given artistry. So if you turn with me to Exodus 25, uh, Exodus 25, verses 30 to 33. Did I get this wrong? Oh, Exodus 25, 30 to 33. Maybe I mean 26. No, I don't. Where does it talk about the people who made it? No, I'm sorry. Here, this is why. Where is the section where it describes the people who were given the ability to make the thing? Uh, oh, the people that had the talents to yeah. do all this work? I have 25, but I think I'm wrong about that. It tells Moses how to do it, it tells him the people that he picked. 36.1. Oh, 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 it's 35. Exodus yeah. 35. Yeah, that's 35, that's 25. Yeah, it says in Exodus 35, starting in verse, I'm just going to start at verse 30. Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled, he was filled with the Spirit of God. He has been filled with the Spirit of with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. So, um, you know, we think of the tabernacle as something that Moses helped construct, that where the priests do their work, but God cares about, uh, how, you know, about every detail in the tabernacle. And so he even gives the skill to the artisans who make it. Um, and I think that that's very important because uh, we tend to think, you know, especially now, it's kind of a joke. Modern day artists are kind of a joke um, to us because of the nonsense that they create. You know, the National Endowment of the Arts pays for crucifixes floating in jars of urine, this kind of thing, uh, makes us very cynical about this. But um, true artistry, right, to be a maker of, of beautiful things is a gift given directly by God. Uh, it is a skill given by God. And, he, and it's not just the priests, it's not just Moses, who are blessed by the construction of the tabernacle. Because um, these men, if they have this skill, how do you, you know, then they turn from the tabernacle to then just start making clothing and jewelry and, 
and ornaments for the everyday Israelites, do you think that those things are going to be well-made or poorly made? Well-made, well right? So I love this detail here that God directly blesses these men. Okay, so the tabernacle is also based on a true temple. Uh, there is an actual temple in heaven, and uh, Moses is shown that temple, uh, and um, later Solomon will be shown the same temple, and what God tells them to do is to make a copy of the thing that they see in heaven. So in verses uh, 2840, and 26.30, and 27.8. All of those verses talk about the fact that Moses is, sh is told on the mountain, he's shown on the mountain what it looks like in heaven so that he can make it on earth. But if we turn to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews 8, verse 5, we are told there by Paul, 8.5, he says there, but uh, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so the, the, the thing that he was shown on the mountain, right? Why, why was he shown it on the mountain? Why is it that Moses is up on the mountain with Yahweh? And, and how is it that he can see what the heavenly example the heavenly reality looks like if he's on a mountain. Can you guys explain? Given what we've already talked about, Eden, Sinai, where he receives the law, what we covered last week, where he goes up on the mountain and comes down with messages. What what is the mountain supposed to be? Like that third level. Yeah, it's that third level, right? Because it's in the heavens, and so mountains are a kind of gateway. And so men who go up on the mountain go up on the mountain to meet Yahweh, and, and, and they're sort of like a, a bridge between heaven and earth. And so while Moses is there, he sees things, um, and this is not just Yahweh himself, but he sees into heaven, and he sees what the, ta the, the uh, temple in heaven looks like, so that when he comes back, he makes a copy of it. He was shown. Um, and so the, the tabernacle, as it's described... We can, we can understand a little bit of the ornamentation of the, of the temple in heaven by how the tabernacle looks. Um, and I think it's very important to understand that not only the tabernacle is a copy of the one in heaven, but in fact what goes on on the mountain. The mountain is this in-between place. When Yahweh descends to it, Moses ascends to it, they are meeting there in the in-between place. The veil is pulled back. Uh, okay, so the tabernacle is veiled, right? We already talked about the cherubim on it. But who else was veiled in these days? Someone else was veiled. Wasn't Moses' face veiled? Yes, Moses' face was veiled, okay? So Moses' face is veiled, the tabernacle is veil, veiled, and this veil is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3... Paul uses this language when he's talking about the difference between those in the Old Covenant, who remain in the Old Covenant, I mean, and those who are in the New Covenant. So in 2 Corinthians 3, do, 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 12 through 18. Okay. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in the Old Testament, not all right, the face of Moses is veiled, the tabernacle is veiled, the words are veiled. Yes. What would the, what would the verses you just read? Uh, verses 12 through 18. Thank you. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. So the, those who remain in the Old Testament have their hearts veiled. So, so this is why I want to talk about, because I understand what Laura was saying at the very start of class about reading sometimes Peter Lightheart, and, and you're like, what in the, what have you been smoking? Like, this is a joke amongst, when you, when you read uh, James Jordan in all of his glory, I, like, he's not a pot smoker. He's a sweet old man. But sometimes I'm like, this dude did not make it out of the 60s unscathed. Okay, but, but that is all true. Sometimes it's very difficult for us. But I actually have the same problem when I listen to the apostles. When the apostles start talking about like Hagar and Sarah and how it's like the covenants, and, and there's these other moments where they say it's just like what's written, and then you go back and you look at what they're quoting, which they're not actually quoting accurately, they're paraphrasing, I start to wonder what in the world is going on. Something is wrong here, either with your interpretation or my interpretation. Right? So what I want to point out here is that there are so many deep layers to what's going on here. Okay, there is a veil over the Holy of Holies. There is a veil over the face of Moses. And Paul uses that typology to talk about the veil that's over the heart of the Israelites who continue to read Moses and resist Christ. Okay, the veil wasn't, it didn't just block the physical eyes from seeing the ark. It means something more than that. And imagery in the Bible always works this way. There is always way more going on with these symbols than we realize. Like, I mentioned the lampstand that looks like almond trees. And I stopped there because if I didn't stop there, I would go on the rest of class simply talking about lampstands. Because when uh, a, a church's lampstand is removed, what the lampstand represents beyond just, right? There's a physical lampstand lighting the tabernacle. But when later, in prophetic language, when they talk about a lampstand being removed... They're talking about um, a, a particular church ceasing to exist. Right? The lampstand of Ephesus was taken away, for example. Um, and so we don't want our lampstand taken away. And we talk about this. And because the, the lampstand represents the presence of the Lord in the place of worship. What have you seen? Oh, we're having a baby delivered to us. So can you guys think of other examples where the physical hardware, like a veil or a, ta or, or a, um, a lampstand, other physical items like this that actually have way more meaning than we first imagined? Here from the Exodus story, can you guys think of other things? They're wandering in the desert. Can you guys think of things? where there's a physical object that really means something in the historical story, but also takes on all this super deep meaning. You got the rock, you got the cleft in the rock. You got the cleft in the rock. The snake on the pole. Snake on the pole. The staff. Manna from the staff, heaven. the manna from heaven. <laughs> the actual tablets, um, we're going to talk about that when Moses comes down from the mountain. He has tablets in his hands that God's very finger wrote upon, and he smashes them. And he smashes them physically because what the Israelites have already done is smash them spiritually. Right. Okay? And so this is very important when you're reading stories in the Old Testament. 
They may mention a camel, they may mention a donkey, they mention wells, they mention lampstands, they mention poles, they mention snakes, they mention all kinds of objects. And the objects themselves have a lot of meaning. Like the veil, you go into the New Testament and you'll see how the apostles use it, okay? And this stuff of the Bible, okay, it's not, not the spiritual truths disembodied. The physical stuff in the Bible is what typology is all about. That's what this whole class is about, is getting you guys to understand the hardware, the structure, the stuff in the Bible. Um, yeah, like how many... <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, it's everywhere. It's, it's unstoppable. And, and so when you're reading passages in the New Testament where the apostles um, do not make a lot of sense, right? I'm going to stick with the apostles. Forget Peter Lightheart for a moment. Um, because I think if you, if you actually were going back and forth and looking at the verses that the apostles are quoting, I, I think we all could learn a great deal from them, obviously, about how they're using this typology. Um, and what I find hilarious is, is these works that people, scholars try really hard, and they're like, well, let's talk about every reference in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And I appreciate that they do it, but I always find it a little funny because it's like, I mean, every year or so, they add like 500. It's like, because when you start breaking it down, it's not just direct quotes. It's like references. It's like the veil in First Corinthians. Did any right? He's talking about the veil of Moses and reading. But who, how many people would have thought of the tabernacle and would have thought of um, that veil that lies between the people of Israel and the ark? Okay, but we have had the veil torn away. This is why on, um, on Calvary. Matthew takes the time to stop telling us the story of what Jesus is doing physically on the cross and tells us that the veil in the temple is torn in two, which later, again, the apostles used to make a very important point about the Old Covenant, okay, and the Gentiles and this kind of thing. All right. Okay, so Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28. Verse 9 through 14. 28. What were the verses again? 9 through 14. Okay. Okay, so the tabernacle is where Yahweh lives with his bride. Now, all of Israel is not allowed to go into all of the tabernacle. But how is it that Israel, the whole nation, does actually go into the tabernacle? Through a representative. Through a representative. And, and what do you mean by that? So only the high priest can enter into the inner court as yeah. a representative for the whole people so that he's And he what exactly makes him the representative? Um, the breastplate he's got on? Yes. So it, it's true. It's covenantally and theologically true, and this is just a further point that I was just making. There is a reality to federal headship, right? He is the federal head of Israel. He represents Israel when he goes into the tabernacle. But this is not just simply a spiritual truth. He has upon his person um, various accoutrements that, that represent the people of God. We read in chapter 28, verse 9, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. And, and we could bring Jared in here and he can tell us exactly the skill that it requires to, to etch six names into an onyx stone, for goodness sakes. This is what, why I was talking about the skill. The skill that these men have is remarkable because that is a hard thing to do. 
Okay, so the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so they shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. Then you go down to verse 17. It says, you shall set, all, uh, set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, tobaz, carbuncle, shall be the first row, the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, a diamond, and the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like the signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Okay, so he goes into the presence of God wearing the names of Israel upon him, and that is supposed to represent the whole nation. Just like um, in, in Exodus 24, there's sometimes some confusion because how is it if the nation is as big as it is, how, do, how is it that Moses splashes, or Aaron, whoever, uh, takes the hyssop and, and, and anoints the people, it says. It says he anoints the people with blood. Do you know how long that would take? No. Just previous to that, they mentioned the fact that they set up these pillars for the nations. And so he's, he's splashing blood on the pillars, and, he, and that means he's splashing blood on the people. Okay, because and, and in the Old Testament, people have no problem with this. In the new, in the new covenant, especially modern Christians, this is a very difficult concept for us to understand. Um, this is this is representative government. Um, I am the clauses. So I say the clauses do this, the clauses do that. I say the redeemer does this. Somebody just asked me the question the other day, and I said, "This is what redeemer decided to do." <laughs> and I just find it so funny when I talk that way, because. Right? None of you were there when the decision was made, but the elders of the church made a decision, and then I go and have to tell people, and I go on their behalf, and we exist on your behalf. And, and this is how marriage works. This is how federal headship in the government works, in the church, in the family. Okay, and, and all of Israel goes before Yahweh in the tabernacle. He dwells there with his bride. And some people will be like, well, wait a minute. Some people can't go in there. And I would, and the answer is, well, they go in there in the person of the high priest, okay? Just like Jesus is, right, mankind sits at the right hand, redeemed mankind sits at the right hand of the Father because we are in Christ and Christ is at the right hand of the Father, okay? He represents all of us. We are there with him. Okay, do you guys have any questions about this? Comments? It is something that we have a great deal to learn. Will be my final, <laughs> final comment. Okay. Uh, I have other verses here. Exodus 40. Oh, yeah, okay. So let's go to Exodus 40. At the end, when the tabernacle is all complete, um, you go to Exodus 40, okay? And, and Yahweh doesn't say, okay, now I live there. Because he's never just a God who does spiritual things, right? He doesn't just speak, and the speaking is disembodied um, or, or um, his authority isn't just something that exists without react, like a corresponding reality. Now, those of you who took the C.S. Lewis class with me, um, it's called the, the correspondence view of truth. If, if I say something that's true, it has to have a corresponding reality in the, in the cosmos. If I say that um, a certain pizzeria on Wall and Third in New York is, is, delivers great pepperoni pizza, you can believe it if you want to, but the only way to really know it is to go to 3rd and Wall in New York City and eat the pizza, okay? So I can describe things in New York City, but 
it's not true unless you go to New York City and you find that there's a corresponding reality. Is this making sense? So Yahweh says, I will now live with you in this tabernacle. So there has to be a corresponding physical reality to the thing that he says. And, and this may seem like a weird philosophical side note, but it actually, in the age in which we live, is one of the most important things I said all day, right? Um, a man says he's a woman, and you could, on one sense, say, okay, show me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Exodus 40. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in, in it the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil. Okay, going down to verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Okay, so Moses is literally consecrating the physical items of the tabernacle. Why? Because Yahweh is physically going to dwell there. It's not just a spiritual reality. Okay, then you go down to verse 34, and it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the entire 40 years of their wandering around the desert, there is the presence of Yahweh there in their midst. And you can see it because you can physically see it. He physically fills the tabernacle. So how does an, a God who is infinite um, dwell in a tent? Yes. Me? I'm curious. Yes. At how far into their journey mm -hmm. did they build the tabernacle? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's a good question. Off the top of my head, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't know if there's an indication. Uh, there is a way of figuring it out. Okay. Wouldn't it correspond with where they where Moses went up? whatever area that well, he went up into that mountain? No. So the problem with Exodus is, as we've already seen, right? I went to chapter 40, I went to chapter 32, so they talk a great deal about what they're going to make, then they describe making it, and then they talk about the finished product, and, it's and then... It's not chronological. It's not chronological. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. I just, off the top of my head, don't know what it is. I, I think it was within the first 10 years, I, I think, that just if memory serves, but I'd actually have to look it up. Because like what we're going to do now is go back. We're, all of the things that we've been describing now are the faithfulness of Yahweh. He's taken Israel out of Egypt, taken her into the wilderness, has, has married her, has built a home, and has moved in with her. Okay? All of those things are going on. That is who Yahweh is. Simultaneous to that is this ongoing unfaithfulness of his bride. And, and I wanted to do the two things so that we just get a very clear juxtaposition of the two. Even though as Exodus is written, it's like woven all together. It's like Yahweh's faithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness, Yahweh's faithfulness. So, but I'm just lumping the two things together. So here is Yahweh faithfully living amongst his bride. And his bride is running around um, here, there, and everywhere. And I mean, this, this actually happens to people. I know, I know a guy who got married whose wife was like committing infidelity on their wedding night. Um, oh, how is that possible? Don't even ask. Okay, this happens. Um, and it's very, it's very possible. Uh, and then the, the person apparently went was at the same location where they had gone on their honeymoon, this unf unfaithful person. And, it was, and 
lots to be said about that. This actually like really happened to a person that I actually know. That being said, it's not hard to believe that Israel is like this because people are like this. Okay, here is God doing all these. Right? I mean, imagine in your wedding dress on the day of your wedding, and you have all this family and, and like all the normal things that are supposed to hold you back from your wickedness and sin have no effect on you. <laughs> okay. Well, how do we celebrate the night before the wedding? Yes. In, 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 in unchurched. Unchurched. Yes. Yeah, stag night. And now women do it too. So. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's the whole thing is full of unfaithfulness. And, and I think that's, that's kind of how I think about what's going on um, with Israel here in chapter 30, 32. Yes, yes. You have an answer. You have an answer. What's yes. your answer? Second year of the, the Exodus. Oh, the second year of the Exodus is when they built the tabernacle. Yeah, they would have gone into the Well, there's millions of them. Yeah, they used I to be slaves. So yeah. <laughs> nice. Two years. Okay, that's good to know. I'll have to remember that. Where did you find that, if you don't mind my asking? Google. I better not be Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 Wikipedia is not a reliable source. Yeah, this is the same with Oh, it comes from, oh, um, from Bible.com, but it says, it gives a reference of Exodus 40, 17 to 18. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Okay, so the golden calf. All right, so Moses is up on the mountain having a conversation with the Lord. Um, does it actually say it in the verse? In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was around. See, there you go. Boom. Right there in Exodus. So then, so we have the Sinai event here. So, so Moses... Um, is up on the mountain again. We've had a period of time where they're describing the tabernacle. But you remember in 24, in, in 20 to 24, he was up on the mountain, Moses was, and he's going up and down. He's having all this communication between Yahweh and the people. And then so he goes away, and he's away for a while. Um, and Israel, who's seen a thing or two at this point, thinks, oh, well, he must be up there with our Lord. No. Okay? They say, no, what, what happened to this Moses? Let's give up on this Moses guy uh, and let us have something to worship. Um, so that we can worship the God who saves us. And so Aaron uh, takes all this gold that they, that they have, and he fashions cows, these giant oxen, these, these calves. Um, and, and I think it's very important to understand later on when the kingdom is ripped in half, and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom does something very odd that I don't, again, going back to typology, people don't think about. Why is it that Jeroboam makes two giant... He makes, I think, two giant golden calves to worship um, for the northern kingdom. Because he says, well, we can't, if, if we worship in Jerusalem, all of our people will be constantly going down to Jerusalem and we'll lose them. So let us go back in the annals of history and let us use an old way of worship that our people, that's well established now in history, and let us bring that forward and worship in that fashion. And Jeroboam does this funny thing where he uses the, the golden calves as an example of ancient traditions within Israel. And I want to point out that I, this is something that I deal with all the time. People are like, well, this is a, this is a tradition. And you're like, okay, well, where did this, oh, this tradition that you're talking about actually comes from these horrible, uh, this horrible group of Christians that were total heretics. And, and, and a lot of modern Christians, I think, because we don't know the history of our own people, we don't have a culture that's alive in our minds, we are easily duped by this. Uh, there are lots of things that are old that are not good, okay? Um, and this is why, like, 
all people really do is re repackage old heresies. Um, and, and it's like, well, you know, they dealt with this in the 14th century. Um, but I know we're modern people, and so we, we like to figure things out for ourselves. And so they repackage the golden calves as some form of modern... Anyway. So the golden calf is made, and, and Aaron does something... Well, first off, okay, so Moses is up on the mountain. God says, go down there. I'm going to kill these people now. I'm going to destroy them off the face of the earth. And so Moses appeals on behalf of Israel, and he says to God in verse 13, remember, okay, in verse 11 says he implored. He implored with God. He's mediating with God. God has to be talked down um, by Moses, not Moses talked down by God. And I think that this is very, very helpful in a number of ways. It explains a little bit about um, certain prophets are welcome into the council, of, of the divine council in heaven, where they are allowed, they counsel God. God, this is what you've said. God, this is what you've done. This is who you are. This is how you should act. And, and they actually are on this level where they can tell God things like this. Abraham now, too. Abraham was, was um, a part of the divine council. And, and the Divine Council is its own thing. Uh, Joel E.B. explains it way better than I do. If you want to know what the Divine Council is, ask Joel. Um, but it is um, the heavenly beings that, that, like in the book of Job in the first chapter, right? God is there having a council, and Satan is part of the council, and they all seem to be discussing what's going on on earth. Um, and what I'm saying is that occasionally a prophet rises to the level of being able to enter into those dialogues and, and, and has, has a say. And I think Moses is one of them. Now, um, there's a lot to, to be learned here. Now, as, as, as modern Christians in the New Covenant, we have this sort of, we are invited into the divine council, right? Um, we, we have the ability to go to God and say, listen, this is what I, th this is what I think you ought to do. And, and whenever you tell Christians this, like some people get, are, are way too comfortable with it too quickly. <laughs> and some people are never comfortable with it, right? I would never do that. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of us in our ministries have different callings, but I think it's important to under, understand the standard here. What we've been given, right, we, we, we don't go on a mountain, a, a flaming mountain, as it says in Hebrews, and there's not this noise, there's not this thunder, it's not this terrifying thing. We go into the, into the very throne room in heaven, in Christ, and we appeal to God on behalf of, right, and we know enough now from Jesus' ministry as to how to word that. Right? When we see Jesus talking to God the Father about what he thinks he, God the Father ought to do, we have plenty of examples of how that advice is given, <laughs> how that counsel is given, especially because Jesus humbly says, okay, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. Okay, The, the, the prayer that never fails, uh, your will be done. Okay, if, you, if, you, if you're at a loss in every other category, there is one prayer that always works, it is always answered, it never goes wrong, and that is your will be done. <laughs> and... But, but, but I think there's a certain maturity in praying in a more mediatorial way. And that's what we see Moses doing here. He says, don't do this thing that you're going to do. Okay? And I think it's even funnier that he does this, and then he goes down and throws himself a little tantrum himself <laughs> when he comes down the mountain and smashes the... Right? I mean, think about it. He's got tablets that God himself wrote on. I think that I would be a little hesitant to just break these, but it's the passion that he's in a passion. Okay? And he immediately says, uh, he has this conversation with Aaron, where Aaron says one of the dumbest things recorded in Scripture. Oh, I just put the gold in there, and this calf jumped out. I don't even know. <laughs> and it reminds me very much of Saul. Remember, Saul did the same thing, where he was like, 
Well, I mean, I don't know the people. They're just like uncontrollable. Saul, so you told them to do this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the calf didn't form itself. Moses or Aaron makes the calf. And then Moses does something that, that I actually have very, this part I have a really difficult time with, reconciling this. Because then Moses says, okay, all, everyone who's for the Lord come to me. And all the Levites come to him with their swords in their hands. And he says, okay, go, go around and slaughter um, the Israelites who have broken out against God. And, um, and they do. They kill a lot of Israelites. Um, and, and God considers this a very righteous act. And I, I think it, it is, and it ought to be very difficult to understand what is going on here. Um, you know, Jesus says a lot of things. He says, I, you know, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Uh, he says that, you know, mother will be against daughter-in-law, uh, daughter-in-law against mother, father against son, son against father. And, and, if, and if you are Christians who have unbelieving family members, I think you may understand a little bit about the animosity. But, but it would be very, like, I have unbelieving siblings, and I really would have, like, I'm supposed to go around and, like, literally stabbing cousins that I know. Like, this seems, when you think about what's really happening here, you know the people by name. You grew up with them. There you all are in the camp together, and one night, uh, it says they rose up to play, and, and in both the Hebrew, well, in both the translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are downplaying that word by degrees that I can hardly even explain. Orgy? Yes, they're having a massive orgy in front of this golden calf that apparently just sprung out of the fire. Um, and it's like Phineas will later, he goes into the tent um, and stat, runs through two people who are fornicating. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is why people come up with these crazy notions to try to explain this, that God of the Old Testament is different than Jesus. Um, because the ministry of Jesus when he's on, on the earth, he's demonstrating the way human beings are supposed to live, right? He doesn't go around hacking anybody up with a sword. Now, later, when he's, all authority on heaven and earth is given to him, in the book of Revelation, he's described as a giant sword coming out of his mouth, which I don't think is merely a metaphor for the word of God. I think there's more to it than that. Um, today, we're going to read about the angel who's going around slaughtering 70,000 Israelites because of the disobedience of David, right? God does this, and, and Jesus, um, after he's rejected, um, if you want to know... Um, the fact that he is exactly the same as the God of the Old Testament, he, they are one, uh, just read accounts of what happened to the Jews in 70 AD. Okay, the people who rejected him were rejected by him, and they were rejected by him in extraordinary amounts of violence um, and, and, and vileness. Um, and this stuff is just hard. I, I'm with C.S. Lewis that this is just difficult for us. <laughs> <laughs> There's Jesus like setting a little child amongst their in, in their midst, saying, "Be like one of these," right? Weeping over Jerusalem, you know, talking about how he's like a mother hen. Uh, and then you hear stories like this, and you're like, "This God, um, I would rather be his friend um, <laughs> than his enemy." And, and these Levites, I, I think, are impressive. They're, it's very rare in the stories of the, of the Old Testament or the New Testament where you have people who are this zealous um, for, for the goodness of the Lord. And I, I think it's a rare virtue that you find amongst people who are able to do this now lovingly. Okay, it's very difficult to do. Okay, so let me just finish with this. So the golden calf is this whole 
nightmarish episode here. But in, in the other verses that we read were in um, were later on in um, Numbers. And Numbers talked about the, you know those the envious brother and sister to Moses. It talks about the people fearing, the people grumbling, the people complaining. Um, Israel continually is an unfaithful bride. Okay, and and in um, chapter thirty-two it ends with. It says, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Okay? So sometimes when Yahweh visits his people, what he is doing is visiting their sin upon them. Okay? And, and there's a whole argument that we, this is how I'm going to leave it. Are the people who wandered in the desert for 40 years, um, did they go to heaven? Is, is it, did they all go to hell? Did they all go to heaven? Is it possible that anyone went to heaven? And I think that we have a difficult time answering this question because we have a difficult time understanding the difference between eternal damnation and actual physical consequences for sin. The punishment of, of the Israelites in the wandering in the desert, I believe, was dying and not going into the promised land just like Moses. I don't think that means they're all damned. And, and, I, and I think that it's very important to understand that while they are being this wicked and evil, how much wickedness they're, quite ca they're capable of given what they've seen. That should give us all pause. Um, but, but also at the same time, the fact that God disciplines them again and again and again and again, and, and, he, and they, he punishes them for their sin again and again and again, and he is faithfully walking through this with them, instructing them, as it says in Ephesians 5, right? He's a husband who's washing his wife with the word. He, he's continually sanctifying her so that she is pure and holy and good. Okay, so I'm going to end with your part of your assignment for next week is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 22. Okay, so all, all of this whole golden calf episode, all this wandering around in the desert, is not just a story that we read about. Oh, look at those idiots. Paul says very clearly this was written for your benefit, okay, so that you might learn something from this. And, and then he gives us some pointers as to how to interpret these stories personally for us. And I want to I want you guys to go forth and do that. Okay? We've talked a lot about Yahweh, his faithfulness, his bride, her unfaithfulness, and all of this is supposed to be a lesson to us that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10. Okay. Thanks.